you never know the influence that you may have on another person. You may never know the impact that you may be making on them based on things you've said or even particularly indirectly in the things that you've done. You never know who may be watching in the way that you live your life. And I think we know this. If you think about your own life for a moment, think about how many people that have directly or maybe even indirectly affected your life, not necessarily because they said something, but just the way they lived their life. Do you watch the things that they did and it either caused you to want to model the things that they did or it caused you to say, I'm not going to live my life like that. I see the things that they're doing. I see the mistakes and I want to go a different direction. I think all of us can look at our lives and consider the uh, amount of indirect impact that people can have on our lives and how that can influence our lives to make certain decisions. Uh, in, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, this plays an enormous role in what we see these Christians doing with our attention, particularly focused on Paul and Silas, and not only in their preaching, but the actions that they take while they are carrying out their faith. Uh, in Acts chapter 16, we're, we're, we're brought to the an interesting scene where Paul and Silas in verse 1, as well as these uh, traveling companions here in Acts 16, they are going about proclaiming the gospel. Remember, they are going to encourage in the prior cities where Paul and Barnabas had already gone, and they want to encourage them in the faith. They want to see how they are doing. We come across a man named Timothy who is highly regarded. He is a believer, and Timothy joins the, the journey with them, and with such concise words, little did we know what an important player Timothy would become in the role of the kingdom and the expanding of of the kingdom as well. And in verses 6 through 10, I think it is really interesting that as Paul and Silas and the companions want to go to these various areas and proclaim the gospel and encourage various areas who had already heard the gospel, you have them told by God on two occasions not to go to certain areas. The first time, they're told in verse 6 that they are not to go to Asia. Now, don't read Asia as our modern Asia. Think of the region of like modern Turkey today. That was called Asia back then. That's why if you have a Bible map, it'll sometimes say Asia Minor to try to distinguish that we are not talking about the Far East in terms of the globe, but in that general area of Turkey in that region. But notice that God says, I don't want you to go there. And then they try to go up into Bithynia in verse 10 and they're told not to go, verse 9, and they're told not to go there, but rather they are told to go to Macedonia. And I think that is so fascinating that wouldn't you on the surface say, well, God, you just need to send them everywhere. And so sure, they need to go to Asia and Bithynia. And, just, and eventually we know that they did. Maybe not them directly always, but you'll read about the seven churches of Asia. And so the gospel goes there in seven particular cities where we have churches, but not now. But rather, God has a message to send them 
a different way. I want you guys to go to Macedonia. A vision is given to them to go and help and proclaim the gospel there. And that's exactly what they do. And I think it is just interesting to consider because this will play a role in the whole of this chapter is that at this moment, God is closing certain doors. I don't want you to go over to Asia, even though that sounds like a brilliant idea. I mean, should we not take the gospel to Asia? Okay, well, we're going to go to Bithynia. No, I don't want you to go there either, though, though that would certainly also be a good idea because they need to hear the gospel as well. But God is closing doors. And you don't have Paul and Silas going, well, this doesn't make any sense. This is really dumb. I don't understand what God is doing. But simply accepting the direction that God is leading them. Now, at the moment that God was closing doors and sending them another direction, that that wasn't something that should have been understood as a bad thing. I want to start with that because of where this chapter goes for our consideration that just because God closes doors and closes opportunities doesn't mean that that's a bad thing. Sometimes we can really struggle with that because here is my will and I want to go this way and that must be the right way. And I don't care if the door closes. I'm going to beat the door down. (laughs) And we have to be careful about that to realize that it is important to see that closed doors can certainly mean other opportunities and that God can be at work in those things. And if you take a moment, I'm sure that you could think back in your life of different times, different places, different circumstances where God closed certain doors in your life and now you are glad that he did. (laughs) Where in the moment you were not very happy about that. (laughs) And that did not seem right. That cannot be right. And I find it interesting to watch this unfold as the gospel is spreading and how this is going to play out in this chapter of how God is going to use his people in opening doors and closing doors as these things unfold. And what happens next then is you have in verses 11 and 12 that Paul and Silas and his companions now make their way to Philippi, a very important city. It was a few months ago we were able to uh, study in our Sunday morning Bible class the the book of Philippians. This is a really important city. Uh, The text wants it to be clear to you about it being a a leading city, a, a, a foremost city. It's a Roman colony. It is little Rome. It is of the utmost importance. And as they go into this city, we're told there in verse 13 that they do something different. They don't go into the synagogue, which is always their custom in every city that they would go in. And the implication is because there are not enough Jews living in this city to be able to have a synagogue in the first place. And that's why they go to the the river. They go to a waterside, uh, supposing that that would be where those who are gathering for God would be praying. And that's exactly what you see. And that gives us a a feel of what the city of Philippi was about. It doesn't have a Jewish influence. It doesn't have a true and living God influence whatsoever. There's not a synagogue there. There are not Jews there. This is a, a, a place that is just like Rome itself. And yet... Really interesting how God wants to word what happens next. In verse 14, they come to this 
place where the women have gathered for worship and gathered for prayer. And it says in verse 14 that one who heard us was a woman named Lydia of the city of Thyatira, seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I want us to see the beautiful picture in the way that God says what happened at this moment. It is a unique way to say it. That the Lord opened her heart to pay attention or opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. And I think this is a beautiful and important way to describe what God is ultimately doing through the teaching of God's word. That when God's word is being proclaimed, there is something happening. And there's power in the gospel. Power in the word of God that as you are sitting here and the word of God is being read and proclaimed that God is opening hearts, that the word of God is being used to try to filter into that heart and open it and receive it so that we would hear God's word and respond in a way like we see Lydia doing I think this is so important for our understanding that this is the way God operates, that this is the work that God does, is that it is the power of the word of God. And that's why the New Testament is always proclaiming that it is the word of God that will do the work on the lives and the hearts of people. That if you grew up in the pews, you might remember memorizing that faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. That is where Faith is generated. This is how God is going to open hearts is that the word of God is being proclaimed. And this is the work that God is doing with the power of that word. And the reason why that should be so important to us is that that should mean our emphasis then would always be on the word of God. If the way God works on our hearts and the way that God opens hearts, the way God transforms hearts is in his word and the power of his word, then do we give it the attention it deserves? If this is the way faith is generated, if this is the way that faith is encouraged, if this is the way your foundation in God is strengthened, is through the word of God, then it tells us that we need to place such an important emphasis on spending time in the word of God and listening to the word of God and allowing it to have its work. I've told you many times, I'll say it many, many more times in the future. It is one of the reasons why preaching and teaching is not about me standing up here and being funny, telling you good stories and fluffy kind of devotional be well it's all good yay us we're all christians but has to be grounded in the word of god because that's the only way hearts are changed it's the only way hearts are open it's the only way there can be transformation but not storytelling but the word of god itself and you know you'd like me if i told a bunch of jokes and made a did a bunch of stories and talked generically about those things and you might like me and keep me around a long time but that's not going to change lives It's not going to change lives. 
is such an important line there in verse 14 to use the words that God opened her heart. That is powerful. Paul is talking about God proclaiming the gospel and those words are the vehicle by which God is opening her heart so that she and all her household would be saved. I think this is exactly what the prophet Ezekiel was proclaiming was going to happen as he was looking forward to a time of what his transformed people would look like. When Ezekiel said, I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And God is going to come proclaim the glorious message of the cross and the saving work of Jesus. And it's going to cause people to have those stone hearts ripped out, hearts of flesh put in so that we would listen and receive what God is teaching to us and be changed. And all that was happening in this one little line. God opened her heart. She and all her household were saved. Transforming power of the word of God. And how that plays into the rest of this is interesting because what this wants us to show is how much God is at work and how God is at work. The next scene is Paul, Silas, his companions, they're still in Philippi, this Roman colony. You have a servant girl who seems to have a a spirit of divination and fortune telling. She does something rather interesting. She's following Paul around and her as she follows him around is saying in verse 17, uh, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaims to you the way of salvation. It's kind of a weird thing as you're walking around the city and this person is following behind you, making this proclamation over and over again. These people, they're servants of the most high God and proclaim to you the way of salvation. It's one of those situations where a demon person, person uh, who has a demon telling people that what you're doing, what you're doing is probably not the best endorsement. Remember, Jesus had a whole lot of demons doing the same kind of proclamation. You know, we know who you are and it's not helpful. (laughs) And so you have then Paul being annoyed by this after many days in verse 18. And it finally says in verse 18, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus to in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Now, why this is important is verse 19. When her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they'd been brought before the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, they put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. 
I want you to listen, first of all, what is the problem? Here they are going around proclaiming the gospel and seeing their wealth, their future income being dissolved as this woman has been healed of, of this spirit that, that she had. They take Paul, Silas, Paul and Silas in before the magistrates, the rulers of this very city. And they say these words, what they are doing are advocating customs and rules and laws that are not lawful for us to hear or practice. One of the things that immediately should jump off the page to us is an important reminder that the gospel doesn't ever match the culture. It's just not going to match the culture. There's always going to be resistance to the word of God. And this would have been especially true when you go around proclaiming Jesus is the son of God. Well, the emperor was called the son of God. These are things that are not lawful for us to hear. These are not lawful for us to practice to suggest that there is another God in Jesus and not our emperor that we should be following and obeying. But I want you to think about what has happened at this moment. God has prevented Paul and Silas from going to Asia and going to Bithynia, but has sent them to Philippi, to go to Macedonia, seeing this message, go and proclaim the message there. And would you not expect that with this door being opened to Macedonia and to Philippi, that things would have gone really well and that the last thing would have been that you would have been seized, dragged, attacked, closed, torn, beaten, and imprisoned? What a thought. I could have got that in any of the places we went. I thought not going to Bithynia was to keep us from that kind of outcome. Now they're sent to Macedonia, they're sent to Philippi, and this open door that is given to them results in them being seized and dragged and beaten and closed toward and imprisoned. And I think by this point, maybe we're not surprised because we have been told that it is through many hardships that will enter the kingdom of God, that there is going to be that culture resistance. There is going to be the difficulty. There is going to be pain. There is going to be the challenges of being rejected for the glory of the gospel. But how they handled this rejection and this opposition is everything. Look at verse 25. And at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Paul and Silas at midnight are not in prison. And they're not complaining to each other about this isn't right or fair. How could this possibly have happened? They're not in prison, depressed and complaining about what has gone on. They're not in there saying we want to quit. We give up. I want us just to consider that they are in the prison singing and praying. And everybody's listening. 
And the reason why that is a really big deal is because the next thing that happens is there is this great earthquake causing the doors of the prison to be opened, the shackles to be dropped, and it's a chance for all the prisoners to run free, and nobody runs free. And in fact, instead of them running free, you have in verse 28, Paul crying out to this jailer, don't harm yourself that we are all here. Verse 29, the jailer runs in, turns on the lights, checks everything out, makes sure everybody's here. And his first response as he comes into that jail then and sees that they're all there is to ask, what must I do to be saved? Now, do you feel like there was a gap there? Where did that question come from? Why would he ask that? What generated that kind of response out of the jailer? That he would come in and say, okay, what do I need to do to be saved? And what I want us to see is that the way Paul and Silas handled this adversity... Open the door for the jailer to hear the gospel. Why would he ask that question? Except what Paul and Silas have done in the middle of the night. And how they were talking about God. And how they were talking about their circumstances. And the words that were part of their songs. And the words that were part of their prayers caused the jailer to say, I want to be a part of that. I wonder if they could have sung the song like we got to sing this morning. Can you imagine? I want you to imagine you've been arrested. You've been dragged. You had your clothes torn off. You were beaten with many rods. You've been put in the inner prison and your feet are in stocks. And here you are against the wall and you're singing, I'm happy today. Oh, yes, I'm happy today in Jesus Christ. I'm happy today. And the prisoners are listening. And the words of the prayer are not, God, what's the matter with you? Why are we here? This is stupid. I don't understand. But the words that they sang... And the words that they prayed caused a jailer to come rushing in and say, what must I do to be saved? We need to see that how we handle opposition and suffering says so much to the world. Our actions can either discredit the gospel or uphold the beauty of the gospel. How we handle suffering, adversity, resistance, persecution, being treated wrongly, injustice. How we handle all of that can make a dramatic impact to whether people discredit the gospel or whether they see the beauty of the gospel. Friends, please keep in mind that we see all throughout these scriptures that the way Israel acted and handled their relationship with God caused the Gentiles to blaspheme God. They were not the light to the nations. They were not salvation to the ends of the earth as they were supposed to be. They discredited God. 
People looked at them and went, well, that can't be right. And it is so important that we see this picture of what Paul and Silas are doing and how they handle this opposition is only glorifying the gospel. And I want you to see that that's exactly what Jesus did as well. Jesus did this on a number of occasions in his most trying and difficult times. Think about Jesus as he stands before Pilate. Whole thing gone down with going to Pilate, go to Herod, back to Pilate. And Pilate is asking Jesus questions. And I want us to realize Jesus doesn't disrespect Pilate. He doesn't disrespect the process. Oh, this is, you guys are so dumb, Romans. He doesn't decry the Roman Empire, the Roman Emperor, or the Roman occupation in Judea. He doesn't rally his people to overthrow the system or to fight. Remember, Jesus even gave Pilate that answer. If my kingdom was of this world, my people would be fighting. But he gives an answer that was so powerful in how he talked to Pilate. That you're told in John 19 and verse 12, Pilate was looking for ways to release Jesus. It's amazing. In that limited exchange that Pilate and Jesus had. A Pilate who we know from history doesn't care about the Jewish nation or Jewish people. Gets to the end of the discussions And is so amazed by Jesus that he wants to try to release him. And then think about Jesus on the cross. What Jesus could be saying to those who are walking by. While he's on the cross, what he could be saying to the Jewish leaders. What he's saying when he's crucified by those around him. As you see Jesus on the cross, is he complaining? Is he angry? Is he depressed? Is he decrying the system? Is he calling the Romans a kangaroo court? And this is all a mockery. No, rather, think about the text makes it very clear that we are told that the way Jesus died. A Roman centurion turns around and says, truly, this was the son of God. That text is interesting. When he saw how he died, I bet nobody died like that. I'd imagine that's quite a scene of people who know they're dead hanging on a cross. The things they say. But when this Roman centurion saw the way that Jesus died. Truly, this is the son of God. Jesus exemplified the very truth here is that God opens hearts through the gospel and we give people an opportunity to listen by how we act. The word of God is the power to transform lives and change hearts. Everything is about this gospel. These words are the transforming power. But will they listen Will they even bother to hear the words that come out of our mouth when we try to present God's word if we've discredited the gospel? 
and how we live and how we deal with suffering, difficulty, darkness, hardship, trials? Do we discredit it? Do we make it where people will refuse to listen? It should be amazing to us to see Paul and Silas, who at this moment have been charged and seem to be proven as outright criminals, beaten for their crime and thrown in prison. But the prisoners want to listen to them. And perhaps even more curiously, this Roman jailer is listening and wants to find out more because of how they handled that, because of how they lived their lives and what they said. It allowed the gospel to go into the hearts of those hearers. I think it should be so important to us to see this importance of how we handle then our, our, our opposition and how we care about those kinds of things. In fact, that's how the rest of the, of the scene ends. I think people somewhat misunderstand what's going on here at the end. After the jailer comes in and the word of the Lord is spoken to them and it's we're told in verse 33, the jailer and all of his household, they wash the wounds of, of Paul and Silas, they are baptized at once. And message comes in in verse 35 from the magistrates that says, go ahead and let the people go. And so verse 36, the jailer reported these words. They've said, you can go, so go in peace. Verse 37, Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens And have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. Now, what's Paul doing here? Is Paul being sour? You know, is he being ugly at this moment? You guys are wrong and you need to come in here. and You want me to leave? I'm going to make it hard on you. That's not what's happening. I want us to see that what's happening is that Paul has a great concern for the reputation of the gospel. Because being publicly maligned, attacked, dragged, stripped, beaten, and imprisoned indicated to the whole town they're guilty. They're guilty. And Paul is saying, you're not going to let that stand. We can't have it where people think we're a bunch of lawbreakers. We're not. We didn't break the law. We didn't violate Roman code. We have been unjustly beaten and imprisoned. And having them then come and bring them out publicly is a way to attempt to reverse the public opinion by publishing their innocence. No, bring the authorities down here and let them walk us out to show what they said about us and what they did to us was not correct. We, we, we didn't break God's law. We didn't break Roman law. We didn't do anything wrong. This was not right. This isn't about having a, a temper tantrum or a tiff or, you know, trying to, you know, stick it to the authorities, but a concern that the city understand we're innocent. 
We don't want the gospel discredited. We don't want you to think that this is the way it's supposed to be. That the gospel means that you're breaking Roman law. It doesn't have to be the situation. And that's why they do what they do here. It's about making sure that everybody understands. We were wrongly accused. We were wrongly mistreated. We didn't break Roman laws at all. In fact, to be honest, this is only about a servant girl who was healed. And a bunch of people got upset that they lost their money. That's all this was about. This wasn't about law breaking. This was merely a story about people getting upset about losing their wealth. And that needed to be told. That needed to be said. That they had not resisted Rome at all. I think this is important because what we are seeing throughout this section is that God can even open hearts while there is opposition and while there is adversity. I would maybe even go ahead and imply or parenthetically say, at least based on the New Testament, it seems that God opens more hearts and the spread of the gospel is even stronger when there is opposition and adversity. It's not when things are easy that you read about the gospel spreading, but because there is resistance, the gospel spreads. Because there's persecution, the gospel spreads. And to see that God can work through that and how we handle that becomes everything that he can use our faithfulness in the face of suffering for the rescue of others. When things get hard, your response is everything for the gospel. How you handle your adversity and how you handle your trial, how you handle resistance, all of those things are so critical. Because I asked you the question earlier, do you think people are watching You've watched other people and they didn't know you were watching and you were learning from them positively and negatively. And here you see Paul and Silas have a key awareness of that. Big application for us to wrap up this morning. The biggest thing in this whole chapter is to see here is God at work. He's opening these doors, closing other doors, that he's working and bringing the gospel into the lives of people. And he's moving these pieces around and that we should never underestimate the power of the gospel. Never underestimate it. I sometimes think we, we look at the words of God and we think nobody cares. It's not going to change anything. It's not going to matter. What's the point? But this is the means that God changes hearts. He doesn't change hearts through our sarcasm. He doesn't change hearts through us being ugly. He doesn't change hearts through social media. He changes hearts through the word of God. There is no other way for salvation to come. There is no other way that God opens hearts except here. We spend too much time on the periphery of things and don't get people to see what God says. 
And that leads to the second. Then never underestimate the power we hold to cause people to want to listen or not listen. If this is the power to change lives, we need to ask ourselves, am I an interference to that? Or is the way I live my life making people want to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? I see how you've handled your adversity. I see how you're handling difficulty. I see your trials. I see your hardships. I see how people resist you and treat you. And I am amazed at how you have been able to handle that. Is that what people see in us? So that they want to know more. Or is the way that we handle things that people go, if that's what it means to be a Christian, then I don't want any part of it. If acting like that, talking like that, and thinking like that is what that means, I don't want a piece of that at all. We need to be so careful that we can be the block. We can be the stumbling block. We can be the obstacle. And to just be overwhelmed by the power of Paul and Silas. There's a lot of things I think I would have been doing in that prison besides singing. And I'm not sure that my prayers would have caused a jailer to come rushing in and saying, what must I do to be saved? Perhaps the content of my prayers might have been somewhat different. Maybe more selfish. Maybe more vengeful. And not God-glorifying and God-centered. We can't neglect the question that he asks And then we'll end. The Philippian jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? Paul makes a very simple sentence. You need to believe. You need to believe. And belief in scripture is never about you believe that there is a God. That's nothing. Belief is always meaning that you will change your life based upon the reality that you have now come to accept. That you understand that Jesus came and died for your sins and he is the savior of the world and that you believe that he did that and therefore you are going to be transformed and following him. This is what Paul and Silas are proclaiming. And if this morning that God has opened your heart by the word of God, that you desire to follow him, we want you to think about that situation and think about what God is doing because every day is an opportunity for your heart to be opened for you to do as God says or it's an opportunity to close your heart again to the ways of God and continue to be lost. Let's go to God in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we need more faith. Lord, we need more faith to believe that you are working for us in our best interests and doing good in this world and accomplishing your purposes. And Lord, we pray that we would trust you in the directions that you take us in life and that we would follow you with all of our heart. 
Lord, we pray that we would always have open hearts to your word, that we would never be closed off. Forgive us, Lord, for the amount of time that we choose to spend in not caring about you and your word. We choose not to care about growing our faith or becoming stronger or coming to know you. And Lord, forgive us for when our actions have done more damage to the gospel than we could ever imagine. Lord, not only forgive us, but please help us see and help us to remember that the world is watching. The world watches how we live and the world watches the decisions we make and the world watches how we handle our adversity. Lord, help us to always act in a way so that you would be glorified and that people would want to know more about you. Forgive us for how often we have been stumbling blocks that we may have caused people to not want to listen, that we've closed the doors, that we've been the reason. Forgive us for that, Lord. Lord, I pray for us in the days ahead that as difficult as the world may be and as challenging these times are, that we would be beacons of light that could point people to you. Help us to be the instruments so that people would want to know more about you and help us to speak and live in such a way that would only beautify the gospel all the more so that the world would see how beautiful you are. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to sing an invitation song. This is your chance to come to your Lord Jesus before it's too late. Won't you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?